Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing the original 1982 Blade Runner, and yes, we will be discussing all five versions that have been officially released. I am your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago. And we are very, very excited to uh, discuss all five versions of Blade Runner. I don't think there's any other podcasters out there who have uh, done this. This will be a review of the film, but we will also be talking about the different versions, and we will be recommending each version and ultimately giving you what we believe should be the preferred viewing version. So when you sit down to watch Blade Runner, whether that be for the umpteenth time or you're revisiting it before Blade Runner 2049 comes out, we want you to see the best possible vision of Ridley Scott's vision of this story. And we did want to do this uh, around the time Blade Runner 2049 comes out uh, because we haven't seen it yet because it it hasn't come out yet, but we uh, we really recommend you see the original Blade Runner before you see 2049 because I believe it will I, – I believe they're going to tie really close together. And, like, we always talked about it. Like, you'd always tell me, Alan, you need to watch Blade Runner. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And then my friend back here at college, he's like, hey, we're going to watch Blade Runner because he got, I think, one of the – he got a multi-disc set of some of the cuts. And so he showed me a, one of the cuts he put together himself. He kind of added – a couple of different scenes from the different cuts and he showed it to me. And I remember just falling kind of in love with it. And it's like, this looks really interesting. And then, then you're like, Oh no, man, you got to watch one of like one of the original cuts, not one that he put together. And so then you showed me that one. And then that's kind of what sparked this entire thing is just like when you were telling me, Hey, you need to watch this movie. And then right around this time, later on 24 and had been announced. And we're like, well, in that case, <laughs> so now here we are watching the movie about four or five times to watch it for the differences between each version. That's right, listeners. We are watching every single version of the film to analyze it and discuss the differences and make sure that you can know all the differences and see the best possible version. And if you're a fan like we are, then we recommend you do the same. Go watch all the different versions because they're all for the most part, unique in their own way, and there is a very, very major difference, I believe, once we hit the director's cut, that could potentially really change the story. Yes. And now we aren't going to review every single version, because there are some versions that were released on television primarily. There's some TV edits, and then there's a couple other edits for other places. But... We're just recording the the main five that are out there. That's right. So we will begin talking about the work print version, which came out before the theatrical version. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term work print, most films have a work print. It's kind of a rough edit that's close to completion, but not quite yet. It's mostly shown to test audiences. Those are very, very rarely released. So as far as I know, this is one of the very rare few times an actual work print is released for mass consumption to buy on any kind of disc or home media. That's very rare to happen. So it is a treat to see that work print version, to see the very uh, raw, original 
vision. And so we will be discussing that first. And we will also talk about the theatrical version and the international theatrical version. Yes, those versions are different. And about a decade later, roughly, Ridley Scott released the director's cut. And it seems like with Ridley Scott, director's cut doesn't mean director's cut because his director's cut of Alien is technically not his vision. He just kind of went along with that. He says the theatrical version is director's cut, but then there's also with his film Gladiator, there's an extended cut, and it's just a little confusing, Ridley Scott's terms, and well, the director's cut I think was in 92, and then we got the final cut in 2007, so that's about 15 years later, we got the final cut, which is Ridley Scott's definitive preferred version with updated visual effects and a totally cleaned up version and i have the blu-ray digibook set with all five versions it's got a really nice uh, origami unicorn on the front and it's got production uh, storyboards inside of it i'm sure some of our right. listeners have that also i wish i had that i'm having to watch all these off your plex yes and surprisingly uh, about well it's kind of crazy because 10 years ago we got the final cut of blade runner And now this year we are getting Blade Runner 2049. It's a really long time from 82 to 2017. And it makes sense because Blade Runner takes place in 2019, which hasn't even happened yet. And a couple years will be there. That's right. And this new one takes place 30 years after the first one. So Ridley Scott did not just... He, he kind of came up with this, but he kind of didn't because it technically is based off of Philip K. Dick's short story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, Philip K. Dick is was a very prolific science fiction writer. He did The Minority Report, which was big. Uh, I, I haven't seen it. I got to see it. Steven yes. Spielberg and uh, Tom Cruise, he did that. He did... Um, I, I want to say he did the story about a scanner darkly. Um, which is a, a pretty good movie. He also did Total Recall. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, he did uh, He did a number of others also that are escaping me at the moment. And I, I always get him confused with Isaac Asimov, who did iRobot and stuff like that. So I don't want to confuse the two and start saying things I'm not sure of. But (laughs) like I said, this was directed by Ridley Scott, and it was also written by Hampton Fancher, who really wrote nothing of note except for this, and he is also writing Blade Runner 2049. And it was also written by David Peoples, who wrote 12 Monkeys and the Academy Award-winning Best Picture film Unforgiven, and he was nominated for Best Writing for that film. The movie stars Harrison Ford, Rutger Howard, Sean Young... Edward James Almost, Emmett Walsh, and Daryl Hannah. And this cut we are talking about first, the work print, is an hour and 53 minutes. It is the shortest version. And the theatrical is, I believe, an hour and like 56 or 57. It, it gets weird because you start splitting hairs like some's an hour and 57 some's an hour and 56 it's weird uh the film has an 8.2 rating in imdb which is pretty good it is in the top 250 films it holds the 141 spot this film was uh, nominated for two oscars best art direction and set direction 
and best visual effects. It had a budget of $27.5 million, and at the box office, uh, the domestic box office, it grossed $32.8 million. Nobody has the foreign numbers. I'm not even sure if it really opened in the foreign market. Right. We only have domestic, and with opening weekend, it, it opened at number two, grossing $6.1 million. I'm guessing that Blade Runner 2049 will open at number one, and I think it'll have a pretty big opening because this film has developed a uh, big, uh, big following over the years. And I'm pretty sure with the name Dennis Villeneuve on it, who just came off of Arrival, yeah, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it'll get a pretty big crowd. Yeah, Dennis Villeneuve is is perfect for. Blade Runner 2049. Absolutely. Because he did Arrival, which was science fiction, and had about eight Academy Award nominations. Right. And this isn't the first time we've talked about Dennis Villeneuve before. He's also done Prisoners, which is a review we did a, a while ago. That's right. And we will be reviewing, this month, we will be reviewing Blade Runner 2049. So yes. this will be out to you first, so you can make sure to listen to the original film. And then shortly after that, we'll have Blade Runner 2049 out for you to listen but it looks like blade runner was beat out by et which totally oof. makes sense oof yeah spielberg versus ridley scott yeah that would have been a fun year to be at the movies because we had star trek 2 the wrath of khan annie poltergeist the original the thing the john carpenter version is what i mean wow uh, looks like bambi was re- reissued conan the barbarian was out rocky 3 so it was a good it was a good weekend. Blade Runner uh, for a kind of a sci-fi noir, detective noir. It did pretty well. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really good year for movies. I wish I was alive back in '82. Yeah, we we're off by uh, by over way over a decade. <laughs> yeah, a long time. Well, before we get into the synopsis, I want to warn you of a spoiler alert. Absolutely, if you haven't seen Blade Runner. Don't listen to this if you don't want the movie to be spoiled, uh, yes. because we are going to talk about plot points that will spoil the movie. So we want to make sure that that spoiler alert is out there. Right. But without further ado, here is the synopsis. Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, was a Blade Runner, a special detective who hunts down replicants, which are androids who imitate human life. Replicants are made by the Tyrell Corporation and are essentially used as off-world slaves, and they have built-in lifespans of about four years. So six replicants escape to Earth, so Deckard must come out of retirement to retire them, and retire them is a euphemism for termination. He meets Rachel, played by Sean Young, who is a special replicant who was created by Tyrell and works for him. But she is special because she has no built-in end lifespan. Deckard and Rachel strike a romance, but their situation becomes increasingly complicated since replicants are illegal on Earth, and Deckard's job is to terminate them. After great trial, Deckard retires all of the replicants, save for Rachel, who he goes off with into an unknown future. 
Well, starting off this movie, we get an overview kind of of the main city. Then you get the uh, the music that comes in and then immediately just sets the tone for the entire film. I'm always kind of a sucker for cyberpunk, which is this kind of a style. A couple of animes that uh, I can see maybe have harkened off of this is Ghost in the Shell or Cowboy Bebop kind of take this this similar style of filmmaking and they move it into their their own realms. But yeah, th- this opening I, is pretty pretty great. Yeah, absolutely. It's it takes place in Los Angeles 2019 and it's not the Los Angeles we know today. Right. Because most of the movie takes place at night. Yeah. So, it's a very dark but wonderful vision and there's these like fire stacks and flying cars and the American culture has fundamentally changed because there's like these street vendors. It seems very much old world now. Right. And there's like a new hybrid language out there of like German and English and Spanish like fused together. And it's a really unique vision. And it's a very, it just really sucks you in. Absolutely. And that's the thing I don't really like about modern films nowadays. Like, okay, when we watched Ghost in the Shell, and I know we brought this up before, but when we watched Ghost in the Shell, with ScarJo, one of our complaints in it was, hey, this is this world is too clean. Yeah. And it definitely seems like a lot of movies that depict the future that are being made now are depicting the future as this perfect place. But when you look at TV shows like Cowboy Bebop that do go into the future, they have a gradient to it. And same with this movie. There's a grittiness to it that makes the world feel real because it feels like if that was the future, that would be what it feels like. It's nothing's perfect. It's really, really dirty when you, when you get down into the slums and stuff and things are not perfect. And it's meant to be that way because there's, there's, it'd be hard for, it'd be hard for you to make, to have a world where Things where everything is so perfect. I know that's like kind of like the 21st century worldview is striving for perfection or whatever. But seeing a movie that kind of goes against that and shows you, no, this is probably what life would really be like, makes it feel a bit more real, which is scary. Yeah, it 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 does. But somehow it's scary. But you want to really delve into the world and learn more. Exactly. It's yeah. So, it's so fascinating and it's so different. And it's interesting because the work print version and the theatrical version kind of address the world in a different way. Right. Uh, right at first, anyway. Um, and it's interesting because the work print version has those very, very 80s opening title sequences. And it's it's not good. I'm really glad uh, they changed that out for the theatrical version. Right, right. And we also get a dictionary definition of from the new American dictionary of 2016 of what a replicant is. And that is only found in the work print version. Otherwise in the theatrical version, there's no definition. The opening music and credits has changed. And I I love the music that's, that comes with it and the opening credits. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's like exposition of the creation of the replicants and the creation of the Blade Runner unit. And I was kind of wondering I know it's not addressed in this version, but it is addressed in later versions. Could the creation of the replicants in the Blade Runner unit mean something? That's a good question. Could it mean that the Blade Runners are possibly replicants? Replicants to hunt replicants? 
Well, okay, it does explain in the movie that a Blade Runner is somebody who's trained to know what an individual is or is not a replicant. And they do that by watching the eyes and watching the eyes fluctuate as you communicate with them and pulling out memories and stuff. And there's, this is shown in the beginning. They're interviewing Leon, which is one of the replicants that Duckard has to go hunt down later in the movie. And you see this arm come up and it's watching the guy's eyes. And later in the movie, when we meet Rachel for the first time, Tyrell starts talking about the fluctuation of the pupils and all sorts of stuff that goes into human communication. And it's very interesting that it takes somebody called a Blade Runner to go head hunt down a replicant and find out if they really are a replicant. It just kind of goes to show that in this future, things have gotten artificial humans have gotten so realistic that we can that we can't even tell unless we really get down to like analyzing like who they really are on the inside to find out if this person is or is not a replicant and even in the movie they they address it like when rachel was talking to deckard she asked have you accidentally retired a human before and it just kind of goes to show that it's a very falsifiable system the uh replicants are so good have been made so well that it's difficult to tell. Even tests that are supposed to prove if they are or not a human or could be wrong. Right. And something that should be noted is a scene in the very beginning when we're looking out over the world is put back in, I believe, in the director's cut and definitely in the final cut. And it's right. a shot, a very close-up shot of Deckard's eye. Right. So, hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, what, okay, so I'm kind of curious to see what you think, because eyes are definitely a big theme in this movie. Right. So what do you think the eyes represent? I mean, I guess, like, kind of the cliche answer is, like, the window to the soul. Right. You know, um, because eyes are, are a huge part of it. And I think you can, I don't know, I think eyes portray a humanity we see things with our eyes we give expressions with our eyes like how we act you know we could act a certain way but our eyes will tell the story of whether we're truthful or genuine and eyes tell us so much so if their eyes are are human then it's like okay well does that mean they do have a soul and they are human in this way Uh, I don't know. The movie really doesn't go too far into it. It's it's brought up a lot, but not uh, overemphasized or or it possibly is emphasized. I mean, it's just not. They're not going to spoon feed us with what it means. Right. Yeah. They they bring it up, but they leave it up to us to to really think about what the movie is saying about them, too. Yes, and I understand eyes are also a, a big thing in other writings. Uh, Walt Whitman discussed it. Right. And The Great Gatsby, there's the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, and that's supposed to mean, like, the eyes of God are watching you. Right. And that could mean that that eye, we, that, like, shot of the eye of Deckard's eye, it, it could represent some kind of, like, omnipresence, like there is some higher authority over the city watching them and watching everything play out. It's very interesting. I'm sure a lot of people have their own definitions, but... It's, right. And it's pretty hard to crack, and it's pretty hard to say what it really means, since it could mean something different to everybody. Right. And I, I think you're definitely right on that, because one of the bigger themes of Blade Runner, if not the main point of Blade Runner, is what does it mean to be human? And as I discussed not long ago, the replicants in this movie 
are made so well that we have to have tests to see if they are or aren't a replicant, which we come to find out may not be the perfect test. So yeah, I think that re- that the uh, the eyes and stuff, since they do play a huge theme, and we do definitely see a lot of reflections in eyes too. Like we'll get into that when we we'll get into that a little bit later with the scenes with Rachel, and that's where they start to show themselves is the reflections of the of the retinas and stuff. But yeah, I think you're right. the The eyes definitely represent like the human, like going into the soul and stuff, and what exactly it does mean to be a human, which. Uh, may or may not just be the soul or the personality or something like that. And so, yeah, the eyes definitely play a huge role in Billy Gunner. And the movie would not be the same if they did not talk about the eyes and stuff. Exactly. And it's it's very interesting because when, the, when we do see the replicants either attempt murder or they actually do murder, um, when Leon is trying to murder Deckard, He's like about to press out his eyes, right? And when uh, Roy Batty does murder Tyrell, how does he do it? He presses his eyes like into right. his sockets and like squeezes the life out of them. So it's like he's taking that away, just just taking that like taking the world away from him essentially because he's taking his sight, and then he takes his life. Right. And yeah. And there are there's also a couple more themes that go into that scene. When we get there because that's also a huge that's a hugely pivotal scene in the movie yes it is something that i was very disappointed about when i watched the theatrical version is the inclusion of uh like an overlaid monologue by harrison ford in a lot of the movie it it was surprising and i was very disappointed because it's terrible line reading because Harrison Ford didn't want to do it, right? Yeah, and you can tell. <laughs> you can tell. He he's, he doesn't want to do the line reading. And the work print doesn't have it. And I believe only the theatrical version has it. But what it does is it spoon feeds the audience basically the director's vision, what's going on. It explains everything. And you have to listen to Harrison Ford. Like He's like, I don't want to do this. And it's so... It's just really bad. Yeah. It's definitely a huge studio decision. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell that it's a studio decision. Harrison Ford came in. He's like, I just don't want to do this. And so he just kind of foamed it all in. And that kind of ruins the movie when your lead actor phones it in like that. I absolutely agree. I'm really thankful I wasn't introduced to this film with the theatrical version. Right. Uh, my first time seeing Blade Runner... Uh, was a similar uh, version to Alan. Alan's version was a little bit of a hybrid, but not too much. I got the final cut on DVD for Christmas, and that was the first time I saw Blade Runner. And I'm really Mm. thankful my first time was the final cut because that's really Scott's preferred vision. And there's just, it's the complete version. And if I would have saw the theatrical version with that dialogue it would have ruined it for me and right, i'm right. i'm sorry but the dialogue it it's very detrimental to this film to it the point is. of i would not go back to personally i wouldn't go back to the theatrical version there's no reason why i would right yeah and that that's just kind of the problem when the studio thinks that the audience doesn't understand the movie so they try to dumb it down so they can't understand it and it is in 
context, it didn't work. Right. Because he dumped it down to a level that not even the main actor wanted to do it, or not even Ridley Scott gave the okay to do it because it just it removes so, so much from the movie. It, it removes so much of the mystery from the movie that it, it it you're you're watching a film that's spoon feeding you all the information and it just becomes it it, it, it treats me like a baby and it's just like okay. Yeah. It it does, and, like, Ford almost sounds partially drunk certain times while reading it because it's, like, so slow. Right. And we learn one tidbit of uh, background exposition for Deckard's character, which I believe is not in any other version, that he had an ex-wife. Right. And... I wonder if that came from, like, a Total Recall or something. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, something also I noticed the commentary tries to do is... It's really trying to tie the civil war of slavery of our country to like modern time slavery with these robots, you know, they're like, oh, they're treated like slaves and, right, you know, right. we're, they're fighting this war or something and they're trying to end it. And I don't know, it just really played up slavery. I noticed I, I put that in my notes and I'm like, that, that actually like devalues actual slavery because right. These are just robots at some point. So it's just really trying a little too hard to almost be political, I think, with some of it. Regardless of telling you everything without you letting, I don't know, figuring out anything. Right. Well, there's also a line that Batty says, or is more of a question, actually, to Deckard is, do you know what it means to be a slave? And I wouldn't say that it devalues slavery in, in any sense, because... Of course, now our idea of slavery has changed since when it was a big thing back before the Civil War. But I think what the film is trying to say is that we've created we've created artificial humans to do work that we don't want to do. Yeah, and they only have a lifespan for four years, as we said. But yeah, it's interesting that especially during the very end of the film, when Betty brings up that that quote, it's interesting theme that they bring up. Yeah, it is. Well, and the only other like major differences I noticed between the work print and theatrical version are lighting. Um, lighting is much better than the theatrical version. Um, you you could tell the lighting wasn't as good in the work print, and the sound mixing wasn't complete. Right. And also, there's a lot quicker cuts in the theatrical version, and the violence is really toned down in the theatrical version. Right. Yeah, and that's and even between the the international and the U.S. version, the the U.S. version has a, the violence is dumbed down a little bit compared to the international. But there's not much difference between the two theatrical versions either. No, there's not. The only difference is bat, when Batty squeezes out Tyrell's eyes, that's bloodier, and Pris pulls Deckard's nose between her legs, and that's in the work print also. Yeah. And we see Batty that. shove a nail through his hand and. I believe that's all restored in all the other versions except for the theatrical version. So those are the main differences. The violence was either added or removed. And right. there are some different editing choices. They're pretty much the same scene, just different cuts of that scene, if that makes sense. Right. But other otherwise, I have a lot in my notes uh, talking about the cinematography and the score. Mm. Um, the score is so unique. It it is, and on this film would not be the same without that score. It, no, it wouldn't. Uh, it's just so haunting and enchanting, and the cinematography is so incredible. 
Yeah. And I like one of my favorite shots is when Deckard is about to do the test on Rachel in Tyrell's office. And we see like the sun kind of partially setting and there's like these spires and just the, the total like symmetry of the shot is just incredible. And I, I'm just so blown yeah, away. Like yeah. those are probably my two highest compliments for the film is the score and the cinematography that just they're they're essential to the story they craft it absolutely yeah and one of my favorite shots is not too long after this Deckard's in his like apartment or whatever and he goes out on his uh balcony and he kind of just leans over the railing and you see this this car just kind of fly by and you can see all the way down the street and into the city and it looks even though it kind of looks like a backdrop or a matte painting it looks just so good just the way that this film looks is just unlike any other. And this is one of my this is one of my biggest compliments is the way that this film looks, I can never get over. I've seen this movie three times now, and each time I'm blown away by how amazing Blade Runner looks. Uh, and also listeners, I recommend watching Dark City, which is an Alex Proyas film. Um, you can really tell Dark City took a lot from Blade Runner. It's it's definitely as far as um like set design and cinematography and everything it's not as good but it's similar so if you want to see something that right. knows how to imitate it and give it props then go with dark city uh, i noticed that while watching the film but kind of going back because i had this in my notes it's it's just really surprising and it's just kind of a freaky thought because rachel doesn't know she's a replicant she has pictures and she has right. memories he proves that those memories aren't real because he's like, did you ever tell that to anybody? No, you didn't. So how could I know them? And she just like questions like, okay, well then what is it to be a human if I have these memories? And it's that's right. just so freaky, but pretty deep also. Right, yeah. And he says, yeah, they're actually implanted. They came from Tyro's nieces. And he's like, those aren't memories that you've experienced yourself. They're somebody else's. It is. And I think it's important to point out that Rachel has the photo and Leon, he, uh, Roy calls them his precious photos. And we are like, who are, like, I understand there's one photo in particular that he took, but there's also other photos that I'm pretty sure he didn't take. And I don't know if those are from his memories or things he's been collecting, but something very interesting is on Deckard's piano, he has a ton of old-fashioned pictures lined up. And they're portraits or, right. you know, pictures of other people. And I'm like, okay, I'm wondering, like, is that his uh, heritage? Is that his family? Or is that just things he's collected? And then it makes me start to question, right. well, we see these replicants have a fascination with their memories and their history and their heritage that isn't technically real but it's real to them so could that possibly the same be the same thing for deckard is this a heritage that's not real to him or or it is real to him but not real in actual reality right like are they are they memories that were just implanted right. he has a lot of those old photos exactly and that's definitely a question that a lot of people have been asking is if De- is deckard a replicant or not and there's no really clear answer the of course if you have the narration it kind of answers it for you but in the other cuts of the film um we there's always this sense 
that Deckard may or may not be a replicant. And he may be a replicant hunting down other replicants and under the disguise of a Blade Runner. The film doesn't really answer that, but it asks, definitely asks the question, which kind of makes me ask, where's the humanity in Deckard? Because he's quite a dry person when you get yeah. down to it. Which, that may just, it could, that could always just be, when, like, they're kind of harkening back to those old film noirs, but at the same time, it's very plausible, because the things that Deckard does, like the pictures on his piano, there's a lot of them, you know, it could be that he just collected those from his job, but at the same time, it could just be memories that have been implanted in his mind, but at the same time, though, he never really does talk about his memories at all in the film. If you really think about it. So it could be that he's just self-aware. We don't know anything about Decker's past at all. The only little bit we got was uh, in the theatrical version, he says, I had an ex-wife and, you know, uh, you can see why their marriage didn't work out because he doesn't seem like a very personable guy and he's he was probably always invested right. in his work. Uh, it doesn't really make sense why, he retired from being being a Blade Runner, and we're supposed to assume he's like the best, and he's essentially forced into coming back to doing it. He's like, a lot of people are going to die. This is actually really serious, so you need to come back and right. do it. Uh, it's it's a very interesting setup, one that doesn't give us much to go off of, but if you really pay attention, there are a lot of clues um, that you can tie together. Definitely, yeah. And the film has a lot of uh, different illusions, allusions to uh, creation. Time is a really big theme in this also. We know like God created humanity supposedly with like they like we weren't supposed to die. But when sin entered the world and we see in especially in the book of Genesis, which is alluded to in this film, by the way. Right. We see that humans are living for so long and then God is like, okay, humans will live no longer than 120 years. And we see Tyrell absolutely playing God. Then he realizes kind of the same thing. He's like, okay, man wasn't meant or the replicants in this case weren't meant to live forever. So then he puts a very short lifespan on them to fulfill their purpose. But Tyrell, at least in the beginning with these replicants, is not a very loving creator because I believe it's insinuated with Pris that she's kind of a sex slave in a way. She's meant for pleasure, but they're also meant for like really hard labor. And that's why there was a revolution and they're also meant for combat. So they're meant to do like a lot of the hard work that humanity uh, doesn't want to do. Right. Right. Exactly. And it is kind of interesting too, because when they, when him, when Tyrell and Batty have that conversation, it's kind of freaky because it's the creator talking to his creation that ends up killing him in the end. And it's also interesting though because he does create Rachel, who has basically an infinite lifespan, but then he also creates an owl yeah. that's fake. And they brought it up, it's like, is that fake? And then you see the reflection in the owl's eyes and all sorts of stuff. And it's, it's yeah, it's an interesting theme that time plays in this in this movie because in the very last line of the film uh d depends on which version you have is the guy who does all the origami shapes you know um he you hear him echo from Decker's mind he says it's a shame that she won't live but then again who does and he's kind of right because 
although four years may sound like a short time to us as like, humans, we only live to be about 75 anyways. So when you really look at the timeline, how much difference is there between four and 75 years? Yeah. And that we see the replicants really are the replicants that came. The whole purpose of coming is not to destroy the creator, but for them to gain more life. And this also kind of is exactly. uh, very um, mythological in a way, um, Greek mythology and other things like that. And like I said, this is also tied into like ancient Jewish literature and like biblical right. literature. We see Roy Batty say, uh, "Fiery the angels fell," and these are supposed these replicants are almost like these beyond human creations, and they like fell these fiery angels fell and that's in the book of enoch and it's also in genesis chapter six which is interesting because right there are six replicants and six is the imperfect number seven is the perfect number and six is right the, right it's not it's not the perfect number so there's a lot of play with numbers and time and the very first thing we see of uh, batty as he's like clutching his hand because i think that's supposed to mean like his his body is like freezing up and the first line he says is time enough like that could be taken two ways like there's time enough for me to accomplish what i have or like i've had enough time i'm done what he means right. is there's still enough time but then at the end it's like i've had enough time i've i've accomplished it like he he like has like this perfect understanding of everything um it's so amazing and also not too long after we meet batty he says if you could only see what i've seen with your eyes and he says the same thing right. at the end which is probably like one of the greatest monologues in cinema history it's so amazing absolutely yeah he says that line for the first time he's talking to the guy who creates the eyes for the replicants too Yes. It's not like they can go directly to the creator for Tyrell. They're trying to go they they go to the the Asian guy with the eyes and they go to JF Sebastian and then finally they go to the ultimate creator. Tyrell. Right. Yeah, they kind of just go up the ladder of cuz one guy creates the eyes and then JF Sebastian created like the mind and stuff or whatever and then yeah, then they finally get up to Tyrell who created like the soul or whatever and stuff for him. Right. That's that's exactly it. And when they do go see Tyrell, they're ascending to him. They're ascending super high. Exactly. They like have to go really high up to ascend to him. And it's it's so amazing, the symbolism that plays into this. Right. And it's also kind of interesting, too, because the only way they can get up there is from is through JF right. Sebastian. They give him the elevator, and they go about halfway, and then it stops. And then Tyrell is like, what you need? Says, oh, yeah, well, I need to move this piece to that to this place because they're playing a chess game, right? And then he's like, oh, yeah, okay, come on up and stuff. And so, yeah, it's very, very, it's kind of biblical in a sense because not just that, but it's also, this movie's also very philosophical as well. It's, it's just, it's interesting that this kind of a sci-fi movie isn't all about, like, explosions and what can what can make what can we make this look cool and all sorts of stuff like that just have a good time but it's also like making you think like inwardly to about yourself and about your life and stuff like that and how much time do we have left and all kinds of stuff like that it's it's really really interesting 
Yes, and something I think that we should uh, bring up is that alludes to Deckard being possibly being a replicant. It's not in the work print. It's not in right. the theatrical. It was first introduced in the director's cut, and of course, it's in the finals cut. And I really, really love the scene. I really love it. And so I was really shocked to see this was not in the widely released theatrical version or even in the work print version. And it's when Deckard is like playing his piano and he's kind of falling asleep at his piano and he's dreaming of a unicorn. He couldn't have an actual memory of a unicorn because unicorns don't exist. But it's like, well, wait, is that a memory of a unicorn? that's implanted in him right. or is it a dream and i really think it like makes it like puts in context the very end when deckard sees that the other officer that's kind of been with him throughout the movie he's left a unicorn right there on his front doorstep and right. that is like right. okay yeah because deckard pulls the same thing on rachel because he's like oh you you know did this and this when you were a kid and she's like but how'd you know that? And he's like, those are because those are implanted memories. And then the guy, it's like, well, how did, how did, it's just very eerie. And I'm sure that would be a very, very eerie thing for Deckard because he's been dreaming of a unicorn and then, or remembering a unicorn. And then he sees that unicorn at the very end. And that's just like, neither of you are going to live because we know who you are. You are, it's not explicitly stated, but that is the biggest insinuation aside from the other um, kind of hints that we've been talking about that Deckard is actually a replicant. It's crazy. Right. It makes the story even even more interesting when you find out that when you get that question of, oh, is Deckard a replicant or not? Because there are things that are leading to him being a replicant. And like the uh, like the unicorn and stuff like that, and then at the very end you get the uniform, and then you get that line that said from the guy before who made those origami shapes of it's a, it's a it's too bad that she won't live, but then again who yeah. does you know you know it's it, it's cause for great discussion, and there has been a lot of discussion on this topic because it's very it's very very subtle. I think it's I I'm not a hundred percent positive because I haven't seen the sequel yet, but it's possible it's very possible that it will be addressed whether deckard is a replicant or not i'm kind of hoping that it's not addressed because it's just one of those mysteries where it's like well that's a mystery don't explain it to me i just want to like live in that mystery and that wonder of like whoa i don't know that's amazing but i don't i don't think denise villeneuve would mess it up because he said in interviews like he he absolutely knows how much is writing on this and like how like precious this film is to fans and he's not going to like screw it up. So I have faith in him, but I'm just saying it's possible to expect some kind of answer in Blade Runner 2049. Right. Right. I'm sure and I'm I'm sure that he'll be careful because there are different versions of this film that say different things. So depending on which version the audience has seen, they may or may not get that sense of, oh, is Deckard a replicate or not? Or like in the work print, doesn't even talk about it. It is true. I guess we'll find out. It's true. And you mentioned something earlier that I think is really important to uh, just briefly discuss is 
when they do go meet Tyrell, and we learn that Tyrell has been playing chess with J.F. Sebastian, it's just interesting because this whole movie is like a game of chess. Because right. there's there's pawns, and there's kings and queens and knights, and they all have like their own roles to play, like very specific roles that they can operate within. And we see... Um, I guess these replicants would almost be like a pawn in a way that are used, but they're trying to usurp the king and overthrow the king. And you notice that um, in the in the game, JF Sebastian, he's like so smart because he's doing the game, like moving the like he knows the pieces and where they go in his mind. He puts Tyrell in check, right. and then he puts him in checkmate. And we see uh, right after that. Roy Batty says, it's not an easy thing to meet your maker. And Tyrell says, what can he do for you? Batty says, I want more life, father. Or depending on which version you see, he says something else. But yeah. I, I was really surprised by that because that's a like really crappy change. Yeah, I I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe it was just used to get that R rating. I, I don't really know why. For the listeners who don't know, in the work print, uh, he says father and then in the theatrical he says the he says i want more life f word so i I was like wait what and it totally ruins it totally ruins the biblical illusion because tyrell calls him the prodigal son and clearly he's their father and whatnot and and it's just interesting because tyrell says you were made as well as we could make you and it shows you that he's truly not God and their kiss on the lips is like striking. But in the story of the prodigal son, he does, he runs up and greets them and kisses them. But then we see in this story, the son in the movie crushes the life out of his father and usurps him. And right in a way he does. It's just so deep. There's just so much to it. Right, right, and yeah, it's it's interesting that we that it brings in that story of the prodigal son with Batty because Batty kind of goes off, essentially goes off the deep end, you know, and he's like, oh, I want more life, I can't, I can't live this way because I'm going to die right. soon, and it's also kind of interesting because that kind of relates to the story of the prodigal son with the son, the prodigal son, he runs off um, to spend the money that his father gave him, which is like the inheritance or whatever, and then he spends it all and like just kind of goes wild with it and doesn't have much thought with it, you know, and then he ends up having, he is forced to come back home because he cannot survive on his own. And it's interesting because Batty, they have to run off and they have to go, they're forced to go somewhere else that's not on earth because otherwise they'll be taken out by the Blade Runners. And when he comes back, he's like, I need more life. Like, I need more life. And that's when he talks to his dad, the the father, or Tyrell in this case. But then this is where the story kind of takes a turn and and then he's killing the father. Right. Well, in the in the prodigal son, he says, my son was dead and is alive again. And now he's saying, my son has been alive and now you're about to die. I can't give you more life. Right. I can't exactly. throw you a banquet. I'm not truly God. And it's just amazing because like, it would just be so crazy because the creation is like debating with him because he's saying like, well, what if we do this or change this? And Tyrell's like, no, you, we haven't figured out like, we, I can't just like give you the the fountain of youth. All of a sudden, it doesn't work that way. Right, Rachel right. was made so she could do that. He figured it out by then. But with them, 
even if he had figured it out, he specifically planned to destroy them. So it's a very kind of like dark vision of this worldly god in the movie. It also kind of brings in an interesting theme of humans can't be god in the first place. Yes. Because Plain then god. this happens. Is you know the, Our creation is reflecting of what we've created. And what we are on the inside is not necessarily the greatest thing all the time. I also love how this is not really a cliche no. film because a cliche film would take this theme of, oh, we have created robots and then they turned on us when that's already happened and we're facing the aftermath of what of what Tyrell has done. Even though like there is like this flaw, I do see that the movie ends with hope. And I'm not talking about the crappy Definitely. theatrical version hope. Um, we'll, just, <laughs> we'll talk about yeah. that here in just a second. We see at the end... Like, Roy is pretty much losing his mind, and he's acting kind of like part animal, part human, and he's saying weird things, like playing this tic-tac-toe of going to heaven. He's like, six, seven, go to heaven, eight, nine, go to hell, something like that. Um, really weird things, right. but he's kind of like contemplating this stuff, and I don't think he's really trying to kill Deckard. Um, I think he's just like playing this game with him where... I don't know, maybe he, in a way, he's, like, trying to get him to, like, appreciate his life. He's like, see, my life is ending. We just get this really beautiful ending monologue that is just so incredible. Absolutely. And I, I I read that um, the people on the set, like, had tears in their eyes. Were just, like, in awe, tears in their eyes after this was done. It's just so amazing. And it's also really poignant because he's holding a dove. And... In the Bible, the dove came down from heaven and descended upon Jesus, which was the Holy Spirit. And this movie deals a lot with what is the spirit, what is human. And we see uh, Batty clinging onto this dove or potentially the Holy Spirit. And when he says time to die, he dies, but the dove is released and ascends upwards, which is total symbolism for, I, I believe he's like made peace somehow with the true creator. And it's possible somehow his, he has some kind of eternal soul that like transcends into heaven. And that's such, that's like something that's so hard for me to like comprehend and understand. Right. But the movie seems to insinuate that is the outcome. Right. One of the things he says that I absolutely love is that he says, my life is like tears yes. in the rain. Yes, yes, yes. And it's it's kind of a really powerful, it's one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. It's because he's kind of right. Because he can, you can be crying, but it's also, and, and especially this time, it's raining. And it's kind of like it cleansed him of this of all the things that he's done before to get to where he was at. Because he could not find eternal life where he went where he tried to go to and when i mean eternal life in like a physical form and so when he's on top of that building with deckard he says that line and then he's like yeah time to die and then he's like except at that point he's accepted that there's no way you can get around it and it's it's really really good just the way that this film kind of pulls that that whole thing together and rounds it all out because every replicant except for rachel up until this point has been killed by deckard and Deckard, instead of killing this one, he kind of just lets him die on his own. Yes. And that's why I was saying I don't, I'm glad he didn't like shoot him and kill him because 
it's really not about that. It's really not about like, I'm hunting you. I'm trying to kill you because we see Deckard right. is about to fall to his death and Batty saves him. He didn't have to, but he's just right. like, it's just goes so much deeper than that. And Batty says, I've seen things you wouldn't believe in the four years that he's been alive. He's like had like an incredible life of seeing amazing things. But then he says, all of these moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. And that's just like mind-blowingly beautiful and poignant. I, I was really I was really bummed out with a work print and theatrical version because they feature different monologues from Deckard. And they're both really bad. And thankfully, I know the final cut uh, corrects that. But Deckard says in the work print, he says... His death was long and slow. He fought death all night because he loved life so much and he wanted to cling on to it. And I watched him die all night and it was slow. And I'm like, no, because Roy Batty dies instantly. And he was made peace with dying and that totally ruins it. And then there's another Decker dialogue in the theatrical version. I didn't, I didn't write it down. But I just remember it was different, but it wasn't any better, and it was really stupid. I want to go back to what Batty says, because he says some of the effect, and you said it, yeah. um, you wouldn't believe what I've seen. And then he also says memories, how they'll be lost, essentially, is what he's saying. is Once I'm dead, the memories that I've had will be lost forever. And it's really interesting. It's kind of, It's also kind of scary, too, because... He's right. The memories that we have in our life, we'll have them and we'll cherish them for, or not cherish them, depending yeah. on what happens or what the memory is. But we'll, we'll have those for our entire life. But once we die, they're lost. And that's it. No other human on earth is going to be able to know what our memories were unless we shared them, of course. But yeah, it's, it's kind of scary that his line is that, yeah, the memories that I've had, real or fake, they're they're going to be lost. Yeah, and I've I really thought about this a couple years ago when my uh, great I think he was my great great uncle Orlin passed away at the age of ninety seven. So by now he would be well over a hundred, but he had incredible right. memories, and even of his father, where his father came to Oklahoma before it was even settled. I mean, he came to Oklahoma and the Oklahoma land grab and squatted on land and they lived in essentially a dugout uh, cave for a while in the side of the embankment or something. And I'm like, those are crazy right. memories and their family owned a circus and they ran a circus and he had 17 brothers and sisters and just these crazy, amazing experiences that... I, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, wow, he's he's gone now. And all of those memories are gone too, and they're lost. I The things I just said are like really the only things I know, but I'm sure there's like so much more. But And all of his like 16 brothers and sisters are gone. And it, that's true. Like when we die, what we haven't passed on in a way, we've passed some things on, but there's other things that we haven't, and they're, they're gone from this world because like the replicants – they're meant to be temporary. Just like we are meant to be temporary and those memories are temporary and they're just lost in the stream of time and the stream of memories like tears and rain. 
And so it's very applicable to right. our lives, right. like especially when you start thinking about it. And it's like, I come from this ancestry, but I don't even know most of it. I just know what I know when I came into this world and what's been told to me. I don't know how much of that is real or that's kind of been implanted in me in a way or or whatnot, but it's it's just eerily close to real life. It, it's, it also kind of makes you wonder in psychology, and I learned this from my psychology classes, that when we think of something or remember something, like a memory, whatever, what our mind does is it basically pieces back together information and stimuli that we've had during that experience, and it recreates as best as it can the, that experience. So when it comes to our memories and stuff like that, when we when we think about something, our mind is recreating that to the best of its knowledge. And so that's why when we remember things, we can we able to recall what we were feeling and stuff at the time. So it's also interesting to know, it also kind of ties into like the the way that the replicants think of their memories, quote unquote, when they're when they're implants and stuff, is because they're not their implants. They're somebody else's and they were just implanted into their mind. And so it's also interesting because we have those and then we also have what Batty was talking about, like the things that he's experienced while he was alive. And then we also have Deckard who dreamt about, or depending on which version you see, dreamt about that unicorn running through the field. And, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to make those two connections, how our, of our minds piece things together. And now it could just be that, uh, now dreams are a different thing. We're not entirely sure about those. But I know that memories definitely, when we think about something in the past, it's always a recreation right. of what happened. And technically, we can we can kind of like fabricate memories because somebody can, like my parents can describe to me something from their childhood that they have a memory of. And like you just said, that memory is not completely how it happened uh, because we're doing our best to piece right. it together. But then I can have – I can remember that too because they told me and they explained it to me. But that's not my memory, you know. Just like with Rachel right. and he's like, that's not your memory. She's like, but I still remember it though, you know. And it's just – that's really weird. And I'm kind of wondering what the replicant's view of experience is. The movie doesn't really explain that. That's not exactly what the film's kind of going for. But at the same time though, when it comes to memories, it's – our experience when we remember things that's from our viewpoint because it's kind of the only viewpoint that we can fully completely understand and so it's kind of interesting to relate that to the replicants is that when they make a memory and they make memories and stuff or memories in general their experiences that we can tell other people and we can try and have them understand what what it was like what we were doing during that time but we will never fully understand the complete context and the experience because we have not experienced it for ourselves. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. But something else I want to, I want to briefly mention before we give our uh, ratings and recommendations for the work print and theatrical versions is Deckard is sitting on the roof and that uh, cop guy comes. I never remember his name. It's like Geff or something like that. He says to Deckard in the work print, at least, he says, you've done a man's job, sir. And I'm like, okay, either he means that as just like a compliment, like you've done a great job 
Or, but it's just a weird way of saying it. You've done a man's job? Like, that just almost implies to me, like, you've done this job as good as a man could do it. Because, like, if he isn't right. actually a man, then, I don't know, that's just another little hint. Either it's something you can just dismiss, or you could potentially read into it. Which I think Ridley Scott wants you to do. Right. And I know that depending on the version, the yes. line's different. In one, it says, you've done a man's job, sir. I guess that means you're through, huh? Or in, I think, the final cut or one of the versions, it says, you've done a man's job, sir. I suppose that means you're one of them. But it's so ambiguous that it could just mean he's a cop again. It could just mean that he's fulfilled what his whole life has been meaning. And it could mean a lot of different things. And the movie doesn't really explain what exactly the line that he says means. It is also kind of interesting that he says he's doing a man's job. I don't know if that means like a policeman's job or like an investigator's job. It's, I don't know, it's it's an interesting line that just raises even more questions as to who exactly is Deckard. And it's kind of interesting how the main character is the one of the biggest mysteries of this entire movie because it's been, especially now with more releases of different cuts of the film, where it raises that question of Deckard being a replicant, that this is the thing that just nobody really knows. There's a lot of evidence that points to either yes and no, but no one ever really has a clear answer. And I'm glad there isn't a clear answer because this is just one of those things I feel needs to be left up to the viewer. It's a puzzle that we we can solve, but it there doesn't necessarily need to be like some concrete explanation because that would just kind of ruin the mystery and figuring everything out with some of those things and it also would kill right it would kind of kill replay value because those movies with like the big reveal at the end and they like explain everything then it's like oh great so next time i watch this i'm gonna literally understand everything whereas this right. like incredibly right. rewards upon repeat viewings because just in this discussion i have discovered so much more in this movie that i haven't while watching it and taking notes. And I've seen this film multiple times now. And I can say the exact same thing too. In fact, this viewing, this last viewing, I was so into the film more than I was the last few times that I watched it. And I remember just watching for things and all sorts of stuff. And yeah, this, this is one of those movies that definitely rewarding on rewatching the movie. And it's, I love films like that because it brings you into the story as much as you want to be into the story. The theatrical version has a very different ending than any of the other cuts the theatrical version has what is it's the happy ending and another movie that did this was um the movie brazil which was done by terry gilliam from the monty python crew and it's technically called the happy ending cut uh and this is a happy ending cut because in the end we see Deckard and Rachel go off and there's another cheesy thing, cheesy monologue about like, we're going to go and live happily forever. It's finally daytime for pretty much once in the movie. And they're going out into the trees in the forest and we assume they're just going to live happily ever after. And there's some stock footage from The Shining. Yes, that is true. The Shining, they have stock footage from The Shining here. I put in my notes, happy ending <laughs> is crap, crap, crap. I, I Okay, I hate yeah. the happy ending. And it's yeah. weird in credits music with weird landscapes that doesn't fit the rest of the movie. It's like now all of a sudden we've got like these weird landscape helicopter shots. And I'm like, no, what? It just ruins it. So, yeah, you have thoughts, yeah. brief thoughts over that happy ending? Yeah, I mean, 
it's the studio's attempt to try and make the film easier to understand. And in this sense, to be fair, yes, that can be done and be done well to try and make a film easier to understand. To an extent. (laughs) Because when you start, like, spoon-feeding the audience what exactly this film is all about, like the ending of this does, it kind of ruins it. And it kind of ruins the rewatchability because it just tells you everything that the film has been keeping subtle up until this point. And the other cuts of the movie really try as hard as they can to keep as much subtleness as they need to in the rest of the, in the, rest of the film. But in here, they kind of just explain it all. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's not really worth it, honestly. It's not really worth being spoon-fed everything when you can sit there and, it, and in my mind you can enjoy it even more piecing it together by yourself because you're getting to experience and you're the investigator in the story as well yes and i 100 percent agree with the work print version i i think it's an absolutely wonderful version um it's it's pretty rough with like it just needs to be cleaned up with sound mixing and things like that. I mean, it's a work print after all. Yeah. But otherwise, the actual story and vision presented is fairly close to the complete one. It's not complete though. So for the work print, I gave that eight stars out of ten. Yeah. So it's a solid recommend. I would probably say it's and it's not very easy to get your hands on. You would have to go and buy or rent the entire box set that comes with all five versions so it's not a very accessible version especially one to see before blade runner 2049 so it's not the preferred preferred version i'm going to recommend to everybody um but i do recommend it a lot more than i do the theatrical version the theatrical version is very weird and i honestly will say it's bad because a lot of the great things about the film are ruined by the monologue that is just heavily put uh, throughout the film. And there's just so much things where it's like, I don't think they realized how great it was. And they, they really just tanked it. And I'm really shocked this is what American audiences saw. Because if I would have saw this in the theater, I would have been disappointed. I would have been like, well, that's not very good. And not came back to it. So thankfully, there are much better versions out there. I would never revisit the theatrical version again. And so I'm giving the theatrical version five stars out of ten. It is a not recommend. Yeah, I'm kind of on the same boat with you. The work print of these three versions that we've seen, the work print's probably the best one. And it's not even the best the best one that we have right. yet to review because we still have the final cut and director's cut. And the final cut is considered to be the definitive one. Of course, we'll talk about that when we get there. But I'd say they both have that vision, but they both go about that vision in two completely yeah. different ways. The work print, is, from what I can tell, had a little bit of studio interference, but not as much as the theatrical releases. Because maybe one of the criticisms of when the work print was released for test audiences was it was hard to understand. And in the studio's mind, that means, I guess, in this sense, they have to add in the monologue and they have to explain everything. And that that just ruins everything because then you're not giving the audience anything to think about. And then it's just not really fun anymore. So, yeah, I would say the work print for me, 8 out of 10, definitely it's a pretty solid recommend. It's, like you said, it's hard to get your hands on. Um, there are better versions of this film to come anyways. 
If you can watch it, it's definitely interesting to see what the original cut was of Blade Runner that was shown to all the audiences. That is very rare to ever see one of those being released. And when it comes to theatricals... Okay, so the international and the U.S. are pretty much the same. There's a couple more violent acts in the international than there is in the U.S. I think it totals like a minute extra, or not even that, because it's the same stuff with with the blood. Right, right. It's basically insignificant. You can see either one, and you get the exact same experience. Yeah, I would say maybe 7 out of 10, and that's being kind of gracious, because they have the same vision. The, The film has the same vision... Than the that the work print does, but it goes about it in a way that just did not work. That's the thing. It did. It just didn't work. It's. It still looks great. It still sounds great. In fact, it sounds probably better than the uh, work print version. Yeah, the the lighting is a lot better, also. Right, and like all the aesthetics in the new in the theatricals are they, everything's yeah. been just kind of been upgraded except for the monologue, and that just kind of oh, that just kind of ruins everything. That ruined it for me. So, can you recommend the theatrical version? I would say it's a slight not recommend, which is interesting because it's a 7 out of 10, which should technically be recommend. I would say no, slight not recommend because of what I just said. It's easy to get your hands on it, yes. If you had a choice between the work print and the theatrical, it's probably two of the more rougher cuts of Blade Runner, I would go work print because it may be rougher, but you're yeah. going to get more out of it than the theatrical version so yes seven out of ten slight not recommend hopefully that confuses you well i'm i'm just glad that you (laughs) don't recommend the theatrical because it's just not worth the viewer's time because it's really not the best vision and right that monologue was just so bad there's just things that were just so bad that i was like okay i i'm not gonna watch this again and i can't recommend anybody else watch it because it totally just messes up the movie on to the director's cut. Now, the director's cut was officially released, I believe, ten about ten years, right after the thea- yeah yeah after the theatrical cut. It was released on VHS. Yeah. I remember that. Yes, the director's cut was released on VHS. I believe it's in my yes. It, it was released in 1993 on VHS. Okay, but. It was screened before that, and it didn't come out on DVD till 97. Right. And since we're talking about releases uh, into the home media foray, uh, the theatrical version was released on Betamax, which nobody remembers yes, what that beta. is. Beta! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Betamax and VHS in 1983, which was just about a year after it came out. Um, but the theatrical version did not come out on DVD until 2007. Wow. Took him a while. And that is because it was just not the preferred viewing experience. It didn't do very well at the box office. And the director's cut, which we're going to talk about in a little more detail, it was released 10 years before 2007 in 97. Um, and that was the cut that had really gained a lot of uh, hype and following, and it changed a lot of things that the theatrical cut oh, yeah. did. Oh, yeah. So, f- from my research, the director's cut came about from 
this guy named Michael Eric, who was a film preservationist and restorer. And he discovered a 70 millimeter print of Blade Runner in a film vault in 1989, which was roughly seven years after the theatrical release. What a lucky find. Yeah, and (laughs) nobody really knew what this uh, film print was, um, but they did eventually find out, well, well, we know now, that this print was the work print version, which was only briefly, briefly screened for just a couple test audiences in like Dallas and Denver or something, um, like three months before the theatrical release. That's, That's pretty rare. To find a work print. Right. Like, that's crazy. Yes. And too often, this is very also rare for it to be screened. Work prints are never, ever really screened after a theatrical release has been done. And that's not just... I'm not talking just nowadays. I mean, ever. Right. So, uh, they the Cineplex Odeon Fairfax Theater. That's a mouthful. <laughs> that's in Los Angeles. And apparently they got permission from Warner Brothers to screen this uh, work print, this essentially never-before-seen cut of Blade Runner. That, because we watched the work print and theatrical release not too far apart, and yeah, it's a pretty different experience. And especially you just heard our ratings for and recommendations for the work print and theatrical, so... It's a pretty big difference. Right, right. Yeah, there's no voiceover. So, I mean, that kind of just improves everything. Exactly. So, Warner Brothers screened it for a... They allowed it to be screened for a film festival in May 1990, and it was a huge success. So, Warner Brothers started booking screenings in 15 more cities across the country, and these events were sold out. Blade Runner experienced a resurgence that had been eight years later. It was gaining a cult following. And they didn't really understand that this was a work print. So uh, they everybody started calling it a director's cut because it was an unchanged product, essentially, right. of the film. Now, as we just said, this is not the director's cut. Right. This is the work print that's been screened. So Scott found out about the cut, and what he did was... He basically disowned this as a director's cut. He said, no, it's not a director's cut. It's rough. It's missing some things. Um, So this is not the director's cut. But Warner Brothers was like, okay, we're making lots of money on this, and it's really popular. So they got Scott's direction. Scott really didn't have total control because he was under – he was working on Thelma and Louise at the time. Warner Brothers approached him about this. So because of time and money constraints and other obligations, uh, this wasn't really the definitive director's cut per se. Right. Uh, and it was a theatrically released. They, re- they re-released it in theaters in 92, about 10 years later. And some of the differences are all 13 monologues have been removed. <laughs> Yep, that'll make it better. What is this, a Shakespeare play? Yeah, right. (laughs) And this was the very first version to incorporate the unicorn dream sequence. Except it's not the It's pretty close, but it's not the exact same sequence in the final cut. Um, This one, the kind of the real sequence that they really wanted, 
was the footage really wasn't there because originally it's supposed to be intercut with Deckard, but they couldn't do that. So it's just the whole unicorn running right. through. But I believe that's uh, corrected in the final cut. Right. Uh, this is very interesting. Um, there's all these little kind of variants about what is said on the rooftop at the end between Gaff, the police officer, and Deckard. And in this one, Gaff asks Deckard on the roof after Batty dies, but are you sure you are a man? Right. So this would be the first time that they started introducing, like really pushing this, is Deckard, is he replicant, er, and stuff. Beforehand, they didn't really do that, but now they're they're really starting to push this idea. And yeah, this is kind of where the final cut really explores this a bit more too, and I say a bit better in the final cut. Right. And it should be noted though, this line really kind of it kind of even though it's supposed to be questioning, it just brings out that question like too much instead of like leaving it more ambiguous. Right. So I believe it is not in any of the other versions. Right. I At least I didn't catch it in any of the other versions. It's just in the director's right. cut. So Ridley Scott did take that line out for the final right. cut. And this is kind of also a uh, a perfect example of not really a director's cut, but a studio cut of a director's cut. Right. Because at the time when they wanted to do this, you know, Ridley Scott was a bit was a bit busy with everything else that he was doing, so he wasn't able to really come back and give his full approval to whatever to what he really wanted to put into the movie. He came back years later and did that with a final cut. But yeah, it seems to be a common theme of the studio kind of getting themselves involved. And usually, I'm not. Usually, I try not to blame the studio for oh, it's all the studio's fault for doing all this kind of stuff. But in this case, they kind of did. It's kind of their. It's kind of the studio's fault that Blade Runner didn't get as much money in the box office when it first came out after the work print with all the with all the monologues put in and stuff like that because they wanted to dumb it down for the audience and try and get them to understand what's happening in the story. But then they started to realize that, hey, wait a minute, we can show there's a work print and that people actually kind of like it. So they made a director's cut out of it and still kept that kind of ambiguity to it. But also, well, they added in all the the um Deckard is a replicant and stuff like that which wasn't all Ridley Scott's vision he didn't come back later of course but yeah right and I think that would be a really good discussion uh, podcast for some time in the future talking about the difference between director's cuts extended cuts unrated cuts right um final cuts things like that because they are different so and a director's cut normally means that the director had a vision he wasn't able to fully implement it for the theatrical release due to a number of reasons it could have just been too long etc etc so normally when a director's cut comes out that's because they were able to totally utilize the home video format where you can watch something super long in your home and get closer to the director's vision but as we said this was not it was closer to Ridley Scott's vision, but it wasn't exactly his vision. Right, right. And he wouldn't get to do that vision for, well, quite a while longer. This was assembled and released in the early 90s. And 
kind of in the early 2000s like er, like early to mid 2000s they did start work on the final cut and the final cut was like uh briefly theatrically released in uh well this month october 5th uh 10 years ago oh wow so that's pretty cool considering 2049 is coming out this week right exactly and yeah this is this is where ridley scott was like this is my vision for the story and it's regarded as the best version of blade runner that you can watch and i mean we'll get into what our opinions are on that a little bit later but but yeah i mean it's 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 one thing to call something a director's cut and then it actually be the director's vision because as we were talking about just a second ago with the director's cut here, it was more or less the studio director cut, director's cut. And right. it wasn't necessarily the studio's fault in this case because Ridley Scott was just busy. But when he came back, he actually wanted, made it his own vision. And it kind of kind of makes me want to ask the question of how many director's cuts that are released now are actually the director's cut? Okay, we'll bring in, say, Batman v Superman. Because with that, when it was theatrically released... It was two and a half hours long, and they had severely cut the film down. And when they released the extended edition or director's cut or whatever, or I think it's, uh, what is it called? Ultimate edition. That's it, the ultimate edition. They added in half an hour's worth of content, which more or less just kind of padded out the story to make it flow a bit better. But it really wasn't, it really didn't add anything to the story per se. So I think maybe even the director's cut, the, the, the phrase director's cut now has been kind of, been kind of skewed a bit compared to what it actually really should mean yes that is true and it's also true not to and even when like extended versions are released it's important not to read that as a director's right. cut right and this is also interesting because something i know we we uh briefly mentioned it earlier in the podcast but uh, just to remind listeners, Ridley Scott's Alien Director's Cut is, in his own words, technically not the his cut of the film. Uh, the All four movies were being assembled for re-release in a new package, and James Cameron, and I can't remember the guy who did the fourth one, some French guy, and Ridley Scott came together, but David Fincher did not come back, actually, to... Uh, put together his thing that's why it's not called a director's cut james cameron doesn't believe in using the word director's cut he always likes special edition but like i said that's for another podcast yeah i mean we also have the avatar Uh, director's cut air quotes which is we got three we got three cuts that's right yeah yeah that's right (laughs) well that's a rabbit hole that we don't need to get yeah but (laughs) normally um normally what scott puts out in theaters is his vision um, and I would say that's more so the case after Blade Runner, um, because he normally doesn't do these director's cuts, and when he does, he normally regrets them, and pretty much that. But this was also called the uh, 25th Anniversary Edition, marking the when it came out 25 years ago. And some some little tidbit of trivia is, sadly, I didn't get to go see it. But this final cut was uh, screened in uh, Wichita, Kansas, in two thousand, the summer of two thousand fifteen. Are you serious? I'm serious. I totally missed the that film festival, but I did come in on the heels of it, and I did get to see two thousand one: A Space Odyssey in theaters, which was incredible. 
Well, that's not too bad then. That's that 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 makes yeah. up for it. But as I said, this was briefly theatrical released, and in December of two thousand seven, it came out on Blu-ray, HD, DVD, and regular DVD. And the big changes are there's the full fully intended unicorn dream sequence and also it has all the violence and alternate edits and stuff that were really in the international cut and i believe possibly in the work print i can't remember because these there's like so they're just kind of these minute details that do get hard to keep track of but this is scott's final cut this is what he wants you to see that's why uh go to amazon i just did this before we talked about it to see what cuts of blade runner i could buy and i think it's possible to get the theatrical version through their streaming service as like a digital file i think um i wouldn't recommend it though clearly um you can get the director's cut it's uh just on dvd i'm pretty sure and the final cut is really the only one that's really widely available. Right. Because like I said, it's on Blu-ray, DVD, and they just put out a 4K um, 4K release of it. And I'm not sure how easy it is to get your hands on that right, right. now. I, I looked last night and that looked like that might be either pretty pricey or pretty hard to get your hands on at the right. moment. I've heard it looks amazing, though. I have heard that, too. I heard that it's one of the best uh, 4K uh, restorations of older films yeah. ever so i would love i mean the blu-ray of the final cut looks gorgeous especially when comparing it with the older releases this cut just looks gorgeous and that's something else scott did was kind of change the aesthetic and kind of with lighting and the color palette right. it's really enhanced a lot in the final cut so i would say this this final cut looks gorgeous oh absolutely gorgeous. absolutely this is definitely the best looking one of all the cuts that we've seen so far the, the director's cut and this one both look the best but the final cut by far looks the greatest yeah i would love to see this on a 4k screen that would look amazing i've heard really good things yeah they actually are screening um in my hometown they're screening a double feature of blade runner and then blade runner 2049 oh that'd be so cool to see that would be really quite the experience to see both films back to back. And thankfully, the final cut was the cut I was first introduced to. And pretty much the cut you were introduced yeah, to pretty, as well. Yeah, pretty much the final cut. If I hadn't seen the final cut at first and I had seen probably something besides the director's cut, I would have been very sour on this film. And it, I don't know, it probably would have been hard for me to get into. Right. But the final cut is its so great. And something I briefly wanted to mention is, it's kind of funny, but it should be noted that you can get all five cuts for a fairly cheap price, whether on DVD or Blu-ray. You can get them all fairly cheap, but that's the only way to get all five. Otherwise, you cannot just go individually buy the work print or theatrical or uh, international theatrical. Not new anyway. You could hunt down used copies somewhere, but it's really not worth it. Just pick up. Uh, that's what I did. I I have the Blu-ray digibook of all five mm-hmm. cuts, and trust me, it's worth it. And there's a couple other editions out there that are out of print. There's like a big uh, Blade Runner briefcase thing and something else. Oh so wow! There's some cool stuff out there. That's pretty. That's pretty cool. 
Yeah, I do find it funny that when Ridley Scott continually, he like keeps, he like kept tinkering with the film over the decade since it was released and everybody kept liking it more and more mm-hmm. until everybody has seen his final cut and the theatrical cut is like, nobody is selling it pretty much and it's one of it's just like not appreciated by mostly anybody and it's the final cut that everybody loves but when george lucas takes his theatrical cut of star wars and tinkers with it everybody's like i can't believe it this is what have you right. done <laughs> it's just world war right III. so i find it funny i do think um not many not as many people would be up in arms about that if uh george lucas or i guess disney now would release those original cuts so you have a choice just like what warner brothers did with this you can pick any version you like essentially and go with it but this is one that does that did get better with age and i do believe the visual effects are also enhanced he did do some visual effects enhancing for the final cut and yeah like you were saying it's kind of the opposite story between more releases of this film kept getting better, and then we have Star Wars, which more releases of that same of the same film kept getting arguably worse. Um, especially when you change things, like when Han shoots, when oh sorry, when Greedo shoots first or whatever. But okay, this also makes me want to ask the question: Where would Blade Runner be if we ne- if that work print was never found in the vault? Because if you really think mm-hmm. about it, it would be just a master, like a lost masterpiece or a lost potential masterpiece. If you really think about it, right? Because it would be just kind of a studio mess that kind of came out, and the work print would be, would of course, just be gone forever because it's a work print. But it also makes me wonder, like, how many other movies so hammered by the studio that they ended up just not being what they should have been. Case in point, Ant Man. That one was supposed to be a. That one was supposed to be directed and written. Uh, com- under complete control of Edgar Wright, but then Edgar Wright and Marvel had such creative differences that Edgar Wright dropped himself off the project, and then that one ended up being a lot different than what he had first envisioned, apparently. So uh, it kind of it kind of brings up the question of how often does this happen? Luckily, Blade Runner was a Blade Runner was a special case, and someone found the work yeah. print, and now we have this amazing cut called the final cut that exists, and not the theatricals. But yeah, it. How often does this happen, do you think? That's a really great point that I didn't think about. Um, addressing, well, okay, I'll briefly address what you have to say about how often does this happen. And I do know that there are some infamous cases. Um, the big one that's coming to mind right now, which I haven't seen, but I've just heard, is called All the Pretty Horses, which I believe is a book, but it's a movie starring Matt Damon. And... That was incredibly messed with with the studio. So apparently there was like some kind of, you know, full cut that was just brilliant. That uh, I don't know why, but it'll never see the light of day. And what we have is like a vastly inferior edition. And I know there's been a number of movies uh, like that. And it, it really is too bad. And it makes me sad because, for instance, this really wasn't technically fully studio interference but like with metropolis that was like two and a half hours long and there was so much footage that was lost so it was only like barely over an hour and totally changed and tons of stuff missing but there's a couple different versions and finally there's the complete metropolis so there's numerous other examples that i would love to discuss in another podcast but 
it happens more often than it should and there are some just masterpieces out there that in their present form aren't masterpieces and there's the sad possibility that we'll never right get to see what they could truly be and it does happen once in a while like with uh sergio leone's once upon a time in america i heard the theatrical's good and there is some kind of expanded version but it wasn't until i believe like last year and sergio leone's been dead for quite a while and this movie starring robert de niro has been out for right many many decades many many decades but they just released like some four-hour expanded version that's a really interesting director's kind of thing that's a really interesting backstory behind that but like you said yeah it it's just too bad when that kind of stuff happens if you just let the director do what he wants to do then it's just normally going to be great and the studio doesn't have any business doing that but then kind of coming back to addressing what you first said that's a really good point because if Michael Eric and whoever else was with him, if they didn't find that uh, work print of yep. Blade Runner, we wouldn't be here right now. I don't know if really Scott would have gotten the opportunities that he did. Now, I can't really say that for sure. These like cuts and like work print and everything really did bolster his kind of like name and acclaim because he went from, you know, really Scott, like, oh, Blade Runner, like, right. You know, that movie kind of flopped at the box office and now it's become a really big cult classic and there would not be a sequel. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if Ridley Scott wasn't ever able to come back, like really able to come back, not like not just the director's cut that ended up being the studio director's cut, but then actually he did the final cut. If that had never happened yeah, we may not be here uh, talking about, yeah, most likely we wouldn't be here talking about this preparing for Blade Runner 2049 because Blade Runner, when it finally was released for the director's vision, it ended up being just a masterpiece, essentially. And uh, some people call it a flawed masterpiece. Right. And, I mean, to each his own, whatever you think of the movie. But, uh, yeah, and I think you're, think you're onto something when you said that maybe the director should have more freedom. And that's not to say that the, the studios always make terrible decisions and that they're only there to ruin the movie. Not necessarily. There have been plenty of times where the studio has saved a movie because the director is heading in a place that wasn't exactly the best for the way it, the best way for the film to go, and all sorts of stuff. Now, there of course there are two different mindsets, and we can get into this if we ever have this discussion podcast between studio and directors, right? That because you have the studio who's bent on money and the directors who's bent on creating a piece of art and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, it luckily Blade Runner was able to get a wide release. Like, even a bigger, more popular release after a different cut of it was found. And then, yeah, that makes us here today and asking these all, and then asking these philosophical questions as we did earlier of what does it mean to be human, you know? And then, like, yeah, in the, in the case of Metropolis, there's yeah. nothing they could do about that. That's just normal wear and tear of film because it had just been left in a, it had just been left yeah. somewhere for so long that most of it was gone or lost. Yeah. And so, sort of, yeah. And so, and then we also have films like one of the films I've been dying to see in its original format is this film called Napoleon, which was shot in a very weird aspect ratio of four to one. And it's like a super wide frame. Mm. The only additions you can ever watch now are with the cropped frame or it's just regular, uh, I think it's 235 one or just regular 16.9. 
but yeah, it was it was a super long movie mm-hmm. as well, and it was shot in an interesting way. And you can't find that anywhere, maybe because it's just so old that the original source for that just isn't there. So, Alan, what would you? Which of these cuts? Now that we've seen all of them, what would you recommend people see? for just at all or especially before they go see blade runner 2049 i mean it's it's not gonna be much of a surprise because i've kind of said it a couple of times but definitely the final cut's the way to go the director's cut is still good it's still good if you if you only have the director's cut that's that's good enough because it has essentially everything that's in the final cut but not as well edited and well done as the final cut is but it's still it's still serviceable even the work print i would say is pretty serviceable um for a viewing before we're going to see 2049 it that one of course wouldn't be nearly as good as these two but the final cut if it has the updated visuals not like cgi and all this kind of stuff no they actually like made it all look better and the the film looks really good and it they made it look that way and direct this is the director's vision for what he wanted his film to be this is then by far this is the one you want to go for this is the final cut and luckily it's pretty easy to get your hands on it sounds like I was on Amazon earlier today looking at it as well, and it the Final Cut seemed to be one of the, the most easily to get your hands on on the website. So yeah, Final Cut by far. And I would totally agree. Go with the Final Cut just because of it's the complete vision. It's got everything uh, Ridley Scott wanted in there. Uh, it looks gorgeous. It looks great. It's the complete package. It's the complete story. You won't go wrong with it. And like I said, this version is not easy to get your hands on unless you buy the complete set. But I was really impressed with the work print version. Right. Probably because it's very close to the final cut, uh, minus a couple key things that do make it different. But it's a really like streamlined story, like the final cut is, whereas the theatrical really just meddled with the story and messed it up. But the work print is just a really clean streamlined story and for my blu-ray release they cleaned it up pretty well there are some noise issues in the frame and uh in the audio mixing but i was incredibly uh impressed with that so any of these versions that i would return to i will always return to the final cut um and if you haven't seen it before make sure the final cut's your first viewing experience do not watch these in release order because it'll just make you mad and you won't want to keep going yep. but uh please start with the final cut it's the best of the cuts and if you are a collector like alan and i then you're gonna want to just go ahead and pick up not just the final cut on blu-ray or dvd but you're gonna want to pick them up pick all of them up and they do come with uh, supplemental features and it is really interesting to own a movie that has five different versions. I don't know of anything else yeah, like that. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. And it's really interesting to just sit down and watch them all. Right. And see the similarities, but see how like they're vastly different. Exactly. Yeah, I trying to tell how how much the stories change between one or the other two. Because we, we kind of touched on what exactly is different between the cuts and how that kind of impacts the story and stuff like that too. So, yeah. And for the director's cut, I would probably give it an eight out of ten whereas for the final cut i really think i would bump it up to a nine just because it's it's the complete thing like you get to fully see everything and 
it's it's an amazing film with incredibly deep concepts that re- rewards on repeat viewings. So it's an incredibly high recommend. The final cut is for me nine out of ten. That actually the exact same way eight out of ten for the director's cut. It's good enough, I would say. It's the best you can come to the director's vision, and that would still be a recommend for me. The director's cut, but you can't. You just can't beat what the director intended for his film to be all along, which is the final cut. And yeah, nine out of ten. That's a very very high recommend. This is the best you can get with Blade Runner. If you don't like Blade Runner from the direct from the final cut, then I don't really know what to tell you. You know. I mean, it's it's right. the closest that the director could come to his vision that he wanted. And this is, you just can't beat that for me. You, you just can't beat what the director intended all along for his film to look like. Yeah, and I, I feel the exact same way. I want to change real quick what I said earlier about the work print because I believe earlier in the podcast I gave it an 8 out of 10. Uh, I want to change that to 7 out of 10 just giving it a little more consideration in this time it makes more sense when looking at all the cuts together but that that wraps it up for our analysis review discussion of the 1982 blade runner and all five of its iterations i've really enjoyed discussing this i've always wanted to sit down and watch all of the cuts together and i'm really glad i got the opportunity to do that with you alan so thank you for uh, doing the discussion with me and listeners we want to say thank you for taking the time to listen we hope that you enjoyed this discussion also and it'll give you some insight going into blade runner 2049 i'm sure that they are going to continue exploring the themes we've discussed and i'm sure they're going to go further with it i'm sure this will bring up even a whole new set of themes and concepts and all kinds of incredible things to dive into and remember we will have our review up for blade runner 2049 we are going to go see that and get that review up to you as soon as possible but we're glad you listened to this one first because we really felt like it would be beneficial for uh for that and if it's if it's not up already by the time of this posting then it will be uh fairly soon um a a brief kind of review and discussion on my part uh, that I will be looking at. There are three different uh, short films that were done. One's an anime and the other two are live action, but they like take place like either right after Blade Runner, a couple years after, and then uh, gaps that are filled in leading up to it. So they look really incredible. Um, they are pretty invaluable pieces to kind of bringing the two Blade Runners together because a 35-year gap is a pretty big gap. A lot happens in that time. So I'm going to do a really quick review and discussion over that, kind of decipher what's going on, tell you what you need to know. Make sure to look for that if it's not already up. But we just want to say thank you again for listening and make sure to uh, go to the website and subscribe with your email so you can sure to stay up to date the email comes out every friday and it it has everything that we publish so you can always stay up to date with what's going on and of course it always goes to our social media so make sure to check the social media for updates of the different posts that we do and we really appreciate all of the listeners all around the country we're really humbled by that that we have so many listeners listening from all across the world 
So a big thank you. And if you enjoyed this discussion of Blade Runner, uh, we went a lot deeper than most people do. So make sure to share that with your friends, post it on social media, get the hype going. And we also have two podcasts up that are available for purchase. Those are special bonus podcasts. They're just $1.99. Very, very cheap. And especially the one that I would have to recommend right now is we have a Denis Villeneuve podcast of Prisoners. And that podcast is three hours long. Incredible. We spent so much time getting into that film. It was ridiculous. Yes, we deciphered that film till there was nothing left to discuss. And there's still more to discuss. <laughs> and there's still more. Go ahead and purchase it for $1.99. It's going to really enrich your experience. I think it's a, an incredible Denis Villeneuve film. I would love to do a re- retrospective of his someday, and I guarantee you that we will. So if you want to dive into his world, and I believe a lot of the things that we see in Prisoners with the visual aesthetic and um, just different things, uh, Denis has a specific style. So make sure to pick that up, and any little bit helps us publish these podcasts and uh, keep the lights running so we can keep bringing you more great content. But we love doing this, and we really appreciate for your uh, listenership. So thank you again so much, and we will see you back for Blade Runner 2049. It also kind of makes me wonder, crap, what was my thought? This is a good thought. Trust me, it's a good one. I just remembered it. Um, crap, what was it? Okay, yeah. On to the director's cut. So what kicked off the director's cut? Because it had been... Officially, wow, I'm saying too much (laughs) like that. Okay, redo. (laughs) I always like think of what I want to say, but I'm like, so, right, and this, but, but, also, (laughs) wait, also, hold on. (laughs) Um, All right, never mind. Okay.